Welcome into this Five Clubs Conversation. I'm Gary Williams. As always, great to have you with us. Today, we're going to talk to somebody who is uh, somebody who's made an impact on the game. And he did it in a particular position, formerly with the LPGA as the commissioner. And I was lucky enough uh, to be close to what he was doing, interviewing him on a pretty regular basis as he was advancing that particular organization forward and doing it in a way that felt like warp speed. Uh, when Mike Wan, who is now the CEO of the USGA, took over at the LPGA, they were not in a good place. They were fledgling. They were losing events. Their revenue was flat. Their television was uninspiring. And if you look at where it is now, as he uh, left the door and left the building, they are almost twice what they were. And I'm talking about events, I'm talking about money, and I'm talking about the global reach of their television presence. And primarily that was because of him. And one of the things that, that Mike, one of his fundamental tenets has always been is I'm going to talk to the people who matter most. And in that particular case, it was his players. And he listened to them uh, and they pushed back at times, uh, but they got behind him because his line of communication was always going. Now with the USGA, he takes on a role uh, that is not easy because in my estimation, the USGA has found themselves, if, if saying vulnerable is a little hyperbolic, that's fine. I actually think that they were somewhat in a vulnerable position, never going to be cast aside. They are a governing body of the game of golf, not only in the United States, but collectively with the RNA around the world. But he is in a position, it's not just about the men's U.S. Open. It's about their entire championship uh, recipe and their menu. But it's also about the game of golf and where the game of golf is going. Because the participation of the 25 plus million people who play the game is vital. It's vital to this game as an industry uh, going forward and with the belief that it's going to grow. He's got a big responsibility now and a lot is changing and change is not something that you consider when you think about the RNA and the USGA. It almost feels like it, it goes at a glacial pace. That's not going to be the case, at least in my estimation, with Mike Wan. So I'm looking forward to talking to him about a myriad of subject matter that now is on his plate. With that, we welcome in the CEO of the USGA, Mike Juan. Mike, good morning. Hey, Gary. How you been? Good to see your face. It's good to see you, too. Jersey is agreeing with you. Uh, you look good. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I got to be honest with you. Uh, the one thing about the job I wasn't excited about was New Jersey. I, I, nothing against New Jersey. I just hadn't spent much time here other than Newark Airport and tunneling over to the city. So um, I didn't really ever understand the whole Garden State concept, but I live out here in Gladstone and I get it now. It's horse country. It's, uh, it's been, my wife said to me the other day, this is the prettiest place we've ever been with the nicest people we've ever been. And as a Midwestern kid, you wouldn't normally equate pretty and friendly with New Jersey, but that's exactly what it is. You know, I grew up in Ridgewood. Um, oh, you did? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the impression, you know, you just gave what the impression most people have of Jersey is. You fly into Newark, but if you drive 30 minutes in any direction, uh, it's delightful. And you're in a great little yeah. part of the state, no question about it. I'm glad that, that things are good and you're comfortable. You know, have you been able to do an assessment? And I know it's early of what is different about this job to your previous job as a commissioner of the LPGA? Uh, well, there's so much. It's, it's probably just breadth. You know, I mean, at the, at the LPGA, you're primarily focused on your members, whether they're tour players or teaching professionals. And, uh, and how we're going to make sure we provide vocational opportunities for them, whether that be tour events and teaching opportunities and, you know, making sure the future of the women's game is, is solid. And, and while there's a lot of aspects to that, that's pretty much one lane of the highway. And then you, uh, you know, joining the USGA is sort of like joining a highway on I-5 out on the West Coast. There's nine lanes and everybody's moving pretty quickly. So it's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm floored initially, and now it's, it's been five or six months, but just how many aspects of the game USGA touches and how many uh, how many important foundational roles we have. Whether you're talking about interns that end up working in the game to the green section uh, and agronomy to you know world handicapping from all over you know not just in the U.S. but all over the world. It's um, you know championships and, and governance were were obvious and known to me walking in. But there's so much more to the USGA than I I guess I realized it, but I never really you know never really on my windshield. 
You know, Mike, going back to your previous job, and you and I had some good conversations through the years, and, and you understood and attacked the priorities that you established uh, at the LPGA right away, and, and you were able to quantify those results. Have you been able to identify that the number one priority for you right now in this job? Well, you know, if you'd have talked to me in two th at the end of 2009, early 2010, the number one priority for me was building the team that could make me look good because I'm not, uh, I've never been, never will be the smartest guy in the room. I got comfortable with that pretty early in life and it's still true at 57. Um, so, you know, first and foremost, I wanna build the right team that, that, that's, that complements me and I can compliment them and that we can really take this to the next level. I, I will tell you that um, it, it's been pretty easy for me to identify, you know, five or six priorities. I don't know that I could tell you just one. Um, and those are, around the current operation of the build of the business and making sure we have those fine-tuned the the bigger i think idea maybe to your question gary is uh, one of the things i felt was missing at the usga before i got here and still is and something that i'm really keen on addressing is i'm not sure that i get from the usga what i would call big bold leadership commitments over the next 10 15 and 30 years i remember at the lpga when i said by the time we get to the 2020 olympics 50 percent of junior golf will be will be women and at the time, I think it was 18%. I mean, it was big, it was bold, and I had no clue how to get there. But I realized if I didn't say it, we didn't start hanging on the wall, we weren't going to get there. I would tell you by, um, you know, by January, February 22, you're going to hear about four or five significant long-term initiatives that I want to I want to hang on the wall and not be able to run away from. I don't know how to achieve them all yet. Um, but I do think golf needs the USGA to be bold in its leadership and to, um, and to be the one entity thinking about 30, 50, 90 years from now. I, I thought I did as an LPGA commissioner, but the difference between how futuristic I have to think here and how futuristic I had to think there are night and day, and we need to be the stewards of the next 50 years. Mike, you used the word governance, and globally right now, reflexively, people are averse to governance. They don't want to be governed right now. Sure. Um, so, sure. so how do you accept that challenge and, and get people to feel comfortable with, with what you're trying to do uh, to shepherd this game forward? Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't know that, you know, I've said this many times, I realize that the RNA of the USJ are sometimes golf's cop on the side of the road, checking speed and, and everything else. And maybe not everybody loves the cop every day, but you're glad they're there because it gives us, you know, it gives us control long-term in terms of a futuristic plan. So I've said this from the day I took the job, I don't know if I'm gonna be the best governance guy. They didn't hire me because of my governance experience. But I understand the responsibility, and that's exactly what it is, a responsibility. If, if you go back to 1894 and read the Constitution that formed the United States Golf Association, it says three things. It says, help us create national championships that we can all support as the national championship. It says, help us create um, a rules, an amateur and professional system that actually uh, the whole world can abide by. And it says, help us advance, be the one body thinking about the future of the game. Those three things to me were written in 1894 and need to be my responsibility in 2022 and beyond. The, the, the idea of being a change agent, which I, I think you were significantly uh, in your previous job, in five years, can, can you give me a vision of what the policy, the culture, uh, and the operation of the USGA is going to be in five years? How different? I mean, I can, you know, I can tell you, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to be right. You can put whatever asterisks you want uh, next to it. I think the good news is a lot of people talk about how I culturally changed the LPJ. And I've said many times, the LPJ changed me a lot more than I changed it. I'm looking forward to the same thing happening at the USG. I get it. I'm a different kind of animal. I understand that. Um, and, you know, my highly caffeinated, let's not sleep on it. Let's, let's make a decision and see if it's wrong and we'll fix it as we go. Um, isn't always the right solution in every room. And I'm enjoying the process of, of learning that I've got to be different and at the same time challenging my team to be a little different than we were sort of before I got here. Um, like I said, I, I think five years from now, when you talk about the USGA, you'll probably talk about the, I'm calling them the five commandments. You're going to talk, we're going to be talking about the five things that the USGA said in 2022 that they were going to be about, whether that's uh, water conservation or building a development, you know, program, you know, endowing our amateur championships, how we're going to expand diversity in the sport. There's going to be some pretty big, bold numbers hung on the wall and in five years we won't be there and you'll be asking me how are we doing against the five and i'll be saying as nervous as i was the day we announced them but we're not backing down um, and i think that's um today when you talk about the usga you either talk about a championship or you talk about a ruling 
And that's fine. Those are important operational and, uh, and strategic choices of why the USGA exists. But I want to make sure that people, when they think of the USGA as well, they think about somebody who's thinking about the future and making sure that their grandkids and their grandkids' kids um, have at least as good a game, if not a better game, than they did. And that may sound pie in the sky, but I've said this many times, I'm not sure that croquet had a hundred year plan or darts or bowling. And as a result, we're probably not talking about those sports, but at one time they were at the top of the game televised and people talking about written about in the newspaper. So here we sit at the top of the game. Um, if we're not careful, we don't want to wake up and be croquet really well governed, really well organized, and no one's interested in playing it. And so um, I feel that responsibility to make sure that my kids say golf is better than it's ever been before. And their kids say, and, um, and I feel like we're the group that has to be spending their time thinking about that. Let's talk about a few of the things you just mentioned. Uh, as far as diversity, when you look at the women's game, because you have such uh, a good view of it because of the, the advocacy position that you were in uh, prior, what's going to happen with respect to, to the U.S. Women's Open in terms of, and I always thought it was a false equivalency when people talked about tennis and how there was equal prize money starting in 73 for the men and the women. Uh, I, you can't look at it that way in, in golf, I don't think. Um, how quickly do you think you can get, and I've heard this kicked around, a presenting sponsor, and get money in a position where it feels like it's more equitable? Uh, soon. You know, that's, as you know, Gary, I'm pretty comfortable in that space. Um, you know, finding the right kind of partner. In this case, you know, if we were actually going to put a presenting partner with the USGA championship, that'd be a first in 127 years. So I can't take that lightly. And it would have to be the kind of partner that's um, as mission-based as we are. You know, I don't know that I could, I could uh, just sell more of something as a result of coming together. It's going to have to be somebody who feels the same drive that we do. Um, but that's something that I'm, I'm you know, listen, I, I, Mike Davis heard me say for 10 years while he was in this job, let me find you a presenting sponsor and let's go change the envelope here in terms of how big this championship can be and what it can mean, not just to women in the game, but what it can mean to women in general. Um, so now I'm sitting in the chair and I can't, I can't take that coat off and say, just kidding. So I promise you that's, um, I promise you that's high on the list of things um, that I hope to bring to the podium in the not too distant future. Yeah, the other governing body has a presenting sponsor. They've got AIG. Can you learn anything from the, from the RNA's partnership with AIG as, as you want to apply it to your own, potentially? Well, I mean, I think you know, I think you know Gary, every sponsor of a women's major today, um, uh, I was involved in, yep. you know, either sold them myself or, um, or certainly was a part of selling them. So, you know, whether we were talking about ANA, you know, more recently, Chevron, when you're talking about Evian, when you're talking about KPMG, I mean, I sat in those meetings across the table from those people um, so I understand how important it is to get the right person and the right company, not just the right paycheck. Um, but those things were critical in order to really raise the game to the next level. And like I said, I think a lot of times we sit in this world and we think about just how we're going to change, you know, Danielle Kang or the Quarter Sisters' lives. But I think these kind of changes change the five-year-old Danielle Kangs and the mm. way they think about, um, you know, about whether or not golf is for them. Because obviously not every woman's going to make it to the U.S. Uh, women's Open or make it to a, a women's major, but they can all have those dreams. And when these kind of elevations happen, uh, it just changes the stereotype that some young women and even some young boys have about high, how high is up. And I think we've got to take sort of a lot of the ceiling off of how high is up in women's golf. And that starts with majors. And I, you know, first person I think who called Peter, CEO of AIG, when they announced that was Mike Wan. I mean, I was, I literally got a text from Martin and the next thing I did was called Peter and said, thank you. We've been through a lot of conversations together. And he said, you know, uh, does this, how does this affect you at the USGA? And I said, doesn't matter. You know, what you just did raise the bar for women. Um, you know, I'm going to do the same thing at the USGA. And I'm really, I'm excited and I'm proud that there's companies that are putting their money where their mouth is. You, you mentioned the kids and that gets to something else you, uh, you touched on. And that is the idea of a program and advancement and participation. I've always not understood uh, why this country does not have some type of golf federation. You look around the world and you look at the ability, and it's not that we don't have good grassroots program. Uh, the AJGA provides, you know, tournament opportunities for, for good kids that are skilled. The first tee uh, has, has, you know, again, a great baseline uh, for life skills and the use of participation in the game of golf. But what about the USGA and these other 
entities like the PGA of America and even, you know, looking at Augusta National, which is, is obviously put together some initiatives and have some type of funded with sponsorship golf federation for this country. Well, I might need you in a few months when we come out and launch this because you just laid it down pretty well, but um, uh, count on me for that. I'm, I'm all in and I'm all in with, uh, with the USGA to support that. I, as the former commissioner of the LPGA, it always kind of uh, confused me is probably the easiest word I could use. It confused me that virtually every woman who played on the LPGA came through a country program unless they were American. And with their American, they sort of, you know, they, the good news is in America, there was a lot of places to play and a lot of coaches and you could go find the skills and the education and the knowledge you needed, but you had to go find it and you probably had to go fund it. Um, meanwhile, you know, Lydia Ko came out of team New Zealand or Anna Norquist comes out of team Sweden. I mean, I saw it. I saw it every, every year, even today, some of these professionals would finish our tour championship and go spend a week with team Spain. Um, they still were getting together and working on skills and development. So um, yeah, I couldn't start that as the LPGA commissioner for all kinds of reasons. My members came from all over the world. And for me to say, Mike Wan's going to go launch team USA would have been a really kind of ingenuous, disingenuous in the room. But as soon as I got here, I thought nobody's more staged to do that than us. And we will. And, and um, I've told others that we will. And to your point, I've already gotten the phone calls from other stakeholders saying, how can we help? You need a full-time partner, you need a financial partner, but know that we're in. So you know you're onto something when others start calling. But if you think about both our ability to know these young kids, whether it's at U.S. Junior Championships or not, quite frankly, some of the anchor site stuff we've announced with Pinehurst and, and uh, you know, and Oakmont and Marion, well, you know, we're doing more stuff at Pebble and, and uh, you know, in Aaron Hills. We can, you know, we could bring in 350 of the top junior golfers for a week at Pinehurst and have Annika talk about nutrition and, and, uh, and, and taking care of your body. We could come somewhere else and talk about how to hire and fire a caddy and find the right team around you. We could talk about how to get into Division One schools and bring in some of the best coaches. That's happening in other parts of the world. It's just not happening here in America. And while um, you see the result of that on the, on the top of the women's leaderboards, you don't see it on the men's leaderboards, but I can tell you as a guy who's traveled the world for the last 12 years, it's coming. You know, if you saw what was going on in these country programs with young boys all over the world, this isn't about getting ahead. This is about, uh, this is about catching up and um, it's more than time. So I need some time to figure out who's on first and, and, not, and come to the office once without getting lost. But I can promise you in 2022, um, we'll be talking about Team USA here at the USJ. Uh, it's good to hear. You know, the, these these governing bodies and these entities that, that a lot of people call the five families, I never thought there was acrimony between them, but I thought that, you know, everybody stayed in their lane. They focused on what was, you know, they were responsible for. But I get the sense, my perception, is that the relationships, the dialogue between the PGA Tour, Augusta National, the USGA, the RNA, the PGA of America is in a very good place. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think you I think you have that exactly right. I would say if I go back 20, 25 years ago, we were um, we were golfing polite. You know, we would clap for each other. Um, but we really wouldn't get in. We wouldn't want to pull on the same rope with your nice job, you know, PGA of America. Thank you, PGA Tour or Augusta, but certainly not in it together. I really think, Gary, if I'm honest with you, I really think the Olympics uh, was the was the rallying cry that changed that. It, in 2009, we had this real thing to come together and solve. We were going to Rio for the first time. And oh, by the way, there wasn't a golf course we could play. So right from the beginning, we had uh, we had challenges and all of us. Um, I think came together under that objective. But as a result of that, we actually got to know each other, got to like each other and getting together four times a year, we started talking about other things we should be doing. If you jump forward to 2021, I mean, I can tell you in the last five days, I've had, um, I've had hour long phone calls with Fred Ridley, Jay Monahan, Seth Waugh, Molly Marcoux. I mean, uh, it just happens every week now. And um, it's not Olympic calls per se. We're talking about everything that's important to the game. The entire industry has rallied around a DEI initiative that I think in the past there would have been 40 DEI initiatives from 40 different companies, and they all would have been really cool PowerPoints, but none of us would have done them together. So, yeah, the, the relationships between the stakeholders has never been better. And the desire to sort of help each other get to the finish line is a really, um, it's, both, it's both enlightening and encouraging at the same time. You know, you knew this and you've known this for years, uh, the, the issue about distance in the game. And when the Distance Insights report came out there, you know, it's a dense document that has a lot of information in it. Uh, what was your assessment of it when you read it for the first time and how has it changed now that you're in the position you're in? 
Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, when I read it for the first time, it was um, uh, it was kind of a duh moment. Like, uh, yeah, I got it. We're, we've been creeping longer every year ever since. I mean, I, you know, I got really lucky to play Augusta, I think, when I was in my 20s. And we played it all the way back at 6,800. You know, we were playing from the back of the back. We thought we were so, so good. Today, if I played it all the way back, I'd still be there because um, I'm not sure I'd ever finish a hole. Um, you know, a typical PGA Tour event might have been 7,000 yards. And then, you know, 10 years later, we're 7,400 yards. And now it's 7,800 yards. And anybody who doesn't think we're on our way to 8,800 yards in the future isn't really paying attention. So, um, yeah, so I, I think when I first read it, I thought, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much you paid for this. But um, did you really need this, this many pages to tell me that distance continues to kind of creep forward? Of course, like most people, I read it and said, that's too bad for the people you better go address because it's certainly not my problem. My 95 mile an hour swing speed and my 240 all in carry and roll isn't probably bothering you. Um, so I just sort of did what most people do, read it and said, of course, that's true, but somebody else's problem. And then obviously, you know, when I walked into the USGA, like I said, in the world of governments, I may not love that role, but I respect the role and, and feel the responsibility. You know, to me, when I think about it and all the time I've spent in golf, I hear people talk about the price and time and difficulty being the three things that keep us from playing more golf and keep people from joining the game. And when you think about price, time, and difficulty, all three things have a significant component to distance to them. You know, I see these courses adding, you know, a hundred more yards per hole. That's, um, that's maintenance costs, that's watering, that's all being priced back to you, whether you know it or not, those tees back there that you never use are being maintained and that cost is being reflected. You know, making the golf courses harder so that we can offset distance is making it longer to play and less fun to play. And, and so all those things kind of come back to golfer experience. So um, yeah, so distance is squarely on my radar in a way that I think I was supportive before, but not really engaged. It was sort of, you know, whatever you're going to do, you're going to do. And now my head is uh, squarely around how do we do, how do we do this? And how do we do this in a way to make sure that the game is not just, not, not just an answer to distance, but the game's literally stronger in 30 years. Mike, I don't, I don't think distance is a problem or an issue for the overwhelming majority of people who participate in the game. It is an issue in my mind for a finite number of people who play the game in a way that we will never even come close to touching or even understanding, and that is the, at the elite professional level. Is that enough to cause change to everybody who plays the game? It is. It's not necessarily the only answer. I think you know enough and you know this debate enough to know there's a lot of ways to go. One of the things that never really comes up in the debate, Gary, but 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 should more often is, listen, I spent a lot of my career in golf on the equipment side. Yep. So don't get me wrong. I understand that side and I respect that side. And I would tell you that one of the things that separates golf from so many other sports that, quite frankly, we have lacked in the world of viewership, financial support, TV hours, is the hundreds of millions of dollars that are reinvested in the R&D of the, of the equipment side of this game every year. You don't wake up and see the new bowling ball under the Christmas tree and go, that's it, that's the technology I need, now it's go time. And you don't feel that way, like I said, about a new croquet mallet, but they're governed really well, right? And um, so I think you know, people say to me, just have a tour ball, have a tour club, you know, throw a blanket over that and it's over. Yes, I believe that would solve an elite distance challenge. At the same time, it would probably have a dramatic impact on the investment and excitement in our game that, that consumers, you and me, feel about this game. When we announce a major championship, 30% of the advertising buy is already done mm -hmm. by the manufacturers want to get in. Watch a, um, watch a tennis major and tell me how many tennis ball ads you see or tennis socks ads you see or headbands. There's, um, that business isn't uh, robust and exciting and, and invested in. And as a result, you don't get this kind of renewed excitement about what next year might be versus this year. We, um, we live on that excitement in golf, but we sort of take it for granted a lot. So to me, I don't want to solve one problem by throwing this entire wet blanket over the future of innovation and say, well, that's fixed because I've never thought about buying a baseball bat, you know, that's, that's wood or even seeing a baseball bat advertising in 25 years. So I get it that it works. But does it make the game better? 30 years now, more, more people are excited. So I want to always make sure that we're putting both of those concepts in our head as we walk through this answer. I understand that a truly bifurcated club or ball could solve that and, quite frankly, might be the end solution. Um, but I feel like we have to get there because we couldn't figure it out another way, not because, of course, that's easy, because I think the ramifications of that are more significant than the average golfer thinks about.
You know, guys like Tim Clark and Dave Marr and, and Chip Brewer, David Abelese, all these people you know, um, you know, because of COVID, that that report kind of got shelved. And understandably so, there were more important things uh, to focus on uh, as far as where their nervousness was or their anxiety or trepidation about what they were reading uh, was then. Uh, have you been able to explain to them that things are going to be okay? I don't know that there's anything I can say to Chip or David that makes them go, oh, everything's going to be okay. I mean, I've actually, I have I know those guys well. We've had those conversations. I'm actually going to see David Marr next month and spend a day with him because we don't we don't really have as, as much of a background together. But um, there's no, um, you know, I don't have the magic answer yet because don't, we don't have the, the solution yet to sit down and, and share. And so, of course, they're nervous. I'm nervous. You know, we've got to find the right solution here. That makes sense. But I think I think if nothing else, at least those those folks realize that Mike Wan understands that governance in the game of golf is more than just about a ruling. And then we move on. It's, you know, keeping the overall excitement, investment um, and, uh, and and just uh, engagement with both the fans and the players and the fans. I mean, equipment is a key part of what makes golf really cool and exciting. And anybody who doesn't think that isn't really paying attention or look in your bag and ask yourself, you know, when's the last new thing in the can't keep a club in stock right now during COVID, which is pretty exciting. Um, I really don't think a solution on elite distance that makes that, um, that makes that kind of excitement for what's next and put it in the bag and want to try something new, go away. That can't be, that can't be the best solution. So um, we don't have the right exact answer yet, but I do, um, I do take, I do come at this with an understanding that, the excitement that comes from all that R&D is important to our sport. And I've got to find a way together with my team and the R&D team to feel like we can protect these cathedrals of the game, make sure that we don't cons consistently build another thousand yards every time we build it. Otherwise, we'll never see an urban golf course. We'll start to see prices that cannot be sustainable for the average player. And we'll start to see golf courses go away west of the Mississippi if we don't sort of have some of these solutions. And everybody kind of looks at you and goes, you know, like a global warning yawn, like, come on, none of that's realistic. And I would say, you know, I could show you 40 sports that today exist, but you don't care about playing. But a hundred years ago, your grandparents considered a top sport. So it's my job to make sure we're not on that list in a hundred years. You know, you, you mentioned these cathedrals. The last several years on Wednesday of the Masters Tournament uh, week, Fred Ridley has sat in front of the media and he has fielded at least one obligatory question uh, about distance. I was in the room in 19. I read his quotes from 18. He was asked again uh, this past spring. And every time he says something to the effect of we're at a crossroads, but we are going to react to what you are going to do. It's, it's in his mind, I, every time I've heard him, he's putting it back on you. That's your responsibility, yeah. isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. He should put that back on us as governing bodies. I mean, it's a, it's a realistic concern, not just for today, but much more importantly for the future. If we're asking today's golfer to care about 50 years from now, it's it's like asking today's hairspray user to care about global warming. It's just not in your head, but somebody's got to take that task. And I, I feel that. I mean, uh, Chairman Ridley knows that I accept that responsibility. I've had numerous conversations with him to kind of keep him in the game of what we're thinking. I think he, I mean, I'm not going to put words in his mouth and he probably wouldn't say this, but I think Chairman Ridley knows that, you know, without change, he'll buy more subdivisions and, and, and Augusta will play 9,200 yards. And while that might be fine for the masters, uh, that's really not a model that others can replicate, nor is it a model he wants to send out as something you should, he understands his role as, as a leader and that people follow what they do. If that's how we're gonna solve distance long-term, which is, hey, get over it, just find another subdivision to buy, um, man, we are really not paying attention to the future of the game. And, and so I think his, his charge to us is, if I have to do that, I will. I mean, again, he hasn't said it that way, um, but you know, others can't follow my lead. So yeah, I think he's a great example of, um, he finds a way to keep Augusta playing at the way he wants to play Augusta, but that model's not not replicatable for your typical municipal golf course, and so we uh, we simply can't say just do what Augusta did. It's not it's not an option, and he doesn't want that to be an option either. So I think he's both excited and um, and encouraging when I when I've chatted with him to like last time I talked to him, his last comment to me was, "Mike, keep going and don't stop." Like he just uh, he's he's supportive of what we're trying to figure out, and he realizes from his time both at the USGA and at Augusta, these aren't easy answers. If you take the easy way out. It may not be the right long-term solution. So, um, I, you know, so I'm, I'm brand new, so I'm admittedly clueless. But I, uh, 
but I'm excited about trying to find a way here that in the end, I've been around the USGA enough of an outsider that no matter what we come out with, two thirds of the people won't like it. But if we come out with something that makes the game stronger in 20, 30, 40 years, um, then that's exactly the role we need to play. The hot button issue right now, uh, at least in terms of, you know, the reaction you're getting from professionals and, and vocal professionals is driver distance. Um, I had Phil Mickelson on the program about five weeks ago, um, and I'm sure you've, you've read or heard everything he said. He said you're, you're not assessing the data correctly. Uh, explain it in layman's terms why this is necessary. Yeah, I think the first thing is, uh, and uh, uh, for everybody, uh, not just for a few pros, um, this was not meant to be the answer to long-term distance. We knew that. We said that. I'm not sure everybody read it. I mean, this wasn't like we got in a room for the last four years and 46 inches, let's all go home. Um, that wasn't the thing. What I would tell you is, um, you know, when I started at TaylorMade back in the late 80s, Typical Pro was using about a 43 and a half inch driver. By the time I left TaylorMade, Typical Pro was using about a 44 and a half inch driver. Um, if you jump forward to the day, Typical Pro is using a 45 and a half inch driver. Um, there's no logical person who wouldn't say, jump forward 10 years from now and the typical person will be using a 47 and a half inch driver. It's just history. And you can look at the slope and go, that's where we're going. They'll get better at controlling it. Shaft companies will get better at trying to dial in your, your misses. And with another couple inches on the shaft, you can pick up another six, seven, eight yards. So why would we go through all of these this effort that they've gone through before I got here and we'll go through after I got here to kind of make sure that we can control this constant creep of distance and we'll go implement all that. Everybody goes from a 45 an inch to 47 inch and everything we did is sort of washed away. So um, we we did something that I think in fairness, I'm not sure that you would always give the USJ and RNA credit for, which is get proactive. So if we draw the line at 46 today, 2% of golfers in the world are using a driver longer than 46. Yes, I get it. A couple of vocal pros are some of them, but it's 2%. So when I heard a pro say the other day on TV, I don't know why they did this. It doesn't affect, doesn't affect us at all. It doesn't affect me. They should be working on other things. I actually smiled and said, that's exactly right. This really doesn't affect many. But if we didn't draw the line today, everybody would just step over this you know, kind of nebulous line in two years. And all the other work we do would just go away with, with longer shafts. I told the board, and I said this to the RNA too, if, um, if distance was gun control, this is background checks, 46 inch shaft. And if we can't get 46 inch shaft over the line, well, I'll just go home because it doesn't affect many people. It's really more about long-term. It's the right thing to do and almost everybody knows it. And uh, we'll have much harder discussions in the future about, uh, about drivers, but this one is uh, simply to say, let's, uh, if, the, if competitive pros and amateur events want to, you can draw this line now, and then we can just sort of hold that line as we get into more, more, more challenging distance discussions. This isn't one. I mean, I think a lot of people are so ready to argue about distance. They wanted to argue about this one, but this one's a pretty difficult one to, um, I mean, you can find folks that don't like this, but generally speaking, this one's pretty easy. You know, and Thomas Pagel from your outfit has made it abundantly clear. This is just about elite competition uh, in terms of, you know, who this might uh, affect. And, and to the point that you just made, again, it, it's so few, if, if any, uh, currently. But I, I want to ask it this way, in terms of these local rules and, and the, the idea of the implementation of a local rule that affects the elite player. This gets back to equipment and the sensitivity of people wanting to believe that they're buying the same things that the people that they watch, who they're influenced by. Uh, is a local rule, though, kind of cosmetic bifurcation? Yeah, there's some bifurcation in, in local rule. I won't, I won't, I won't hide from that. It's a, it's a different rule that can be implemented at a, at a, you know, at a professional championship or amateur championship that may not be happening on your everyday golf course. Um, but quite frankly, I'm not sure, sure that's different than real world today, right? There's a lot of things happening on a championship. It's probably not going to happen this Saturday when you play golf uh, with your friends. And, um, and uh, you know, like I said, if, um, if, if the average golfer wants to experiment with 48 inch shaft, uh, they'll come back in their own due time. This was simply more of a proactive step to say, I think you could sort of argue in the past, USGA and the RNA might have waited until there was a 49 inch shaft out there and they would have said, okay, no longer than 49 inches. But at that point, it's, you sort of already, uh, already left the barn. So yeah, it's simply a proactive move to say, if we're gonna work on other much more challenging distance challenges, why don't we now before distance creeps another section of shafts, draw the line there so we can focus on more, more important things. 
And quite frankly, as you said in the very beginning, since distance is primarily challenging at the highest end elite level, this really was this was really designed to, to address that. Let, let's talk about something you, you also mentioned, and that is the U.S. Open rotation. You brought up Pinehurst. Um, yeah, obviously, this decision uh, to, to, to really go all in on Piners was made before you got there. Um, in, in assessing it, and, and based on what you've learned since you've been there, why was it the right thing to do uh, to, to make this alliance to where not only are you going to have a footprint there, uh, but you were making it a, a bona fide anchor site uh, for that championship? Why? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Gary. After a bunch of planes with USGA in my chest, I realized that the average consumer may have read this differently than reality. So let me tell you what it's not. Um, we do not have a plan to have a rotation system for the USGA, and we're going to go to the same 12 courses and just in different time frames. Because everyone's saying, I've even heard other courses say, how do I get into your rotation? Um, we've announced a couple of anchor sites. And what I would tell you about anchor sites that it really does work is, and you can relate to this, Gary, is you typically play a great U.S. Open Championship. And then usually about a month later, we go in and we do a debrief with the club. And we walk through everything that worked, everything that didn't. And the best part of those debriefs is, you know, if we could do it again, you know what we should have done? And you come up with these 9, 10, 11 things, you go, wow, that would be difference making. I mean, if we actually put a cement plat out there and the, and the TV trucks could be on that plat and it wouldn't upset the golf course. If we could actually build that thing we've been thinking about building, we'd make that a media center going forward. And we have all these interesting ideas and then you all kind of go, well, next time we'll know better. And then we come back, you know, 12 years later and say, what do you think about? And they couldn't build all those things because they don't know we're coming back. They're members and the rest. So we started saying, you know, what if you knew we were coming back for a different number of our championships over the next 20 or 30 years? Would we go do some of those things? Would you do them? Would we do them? And as we started having those conversations, we realized that some government officials got involved and said, if you make these kind of commitments to beds and heads and bringing people into hotels and restaurants, because I mean, it's hundreds of millions of dollars mm -hmm. of economic improvement for these states, that actually the states and cities got involved and said, doing these kind of things, we'd help you make some choices that could make these championships and the fan experience um, either less expensive, more exciting, easier in terms of flow. So when we started talking about North Carolina, we realized, wow, the state could get involved, the city could get involved, and both the course and the USGA could make commitments that we know wouldn't be money wasted because we're coming back. So um, in doing that, we actually you know, started talking about we need to build a new test center. North Carolina said, we have some land that we think, and we started talking about building a test center there as opposed to here. And we've got financial help, we got land help, um, and we got expertise that we probably wouldn't have had if we'd done it on our own. From there, we started talking to Pennsylvania about what we did in North Carolina. And same kind of thing. We actually have uh, both uh, state, county, and city help from Pennsylvania because we're going to make these long-term commitments to sort of bring the circus to town over time. We might have one or two more of these, Gary, but I would say in a typical 10-year time of a U.S. Open rotation, we might have two or three courses that fall under a um, site agreement or anchor site agreement, but seven or eight usually won't. And so it's not a, it's not a diet you're going to see us consuming all the way to seven or eight or nine anchor sites. We, uh, we believed in it. It's been beneficial. You'll see the investment in these locations, but, uh, but I don't think it's something you're going to see us wake up next year with 15 anchor sites. I thought 2014 with the men's and the women's back-to-back -back at Piners, I loved it. Uh, I, thought it I thought it represented the game uh, in a really good way. Uh, is it important for you to find fortnights for the men and women uh, in the next 10 to 15 years? Yeah, I think, um, I think I agree with you, for one. It was great. I think it was not only great for the women, it was cool for the men as well. It was fun to watch the men watching the women or practicing together and talking about warm-up routine. Um, it was certainly great for the media to be able to stay and the fans to see it. It, it, um, it was quite a bit of work on the team. It was an incredible amount of work on volunteers. You know what it feels like after seven days of volunteer for a championship to say, how do you feel about seven more? Um, so it's, it's, I'm not sure it's a diet we can roll out year after year, but I do think it's something we can come back to every decade or so and say, let's celebrate the generation that's, that's with us today. So, And you know more than I do, um, not every course could uh, handle it or would want to. Um, but yeah, I think it's something that we uh, we share your excitement for how it went went down. I think the first time the USJ did it, if I remember conversations with with Mike Davis and John Bodenheimer back in the day when I was at the LPGA, there was uh, there was real fear, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we we signed up for this thing, and now we got to go figure out how to do it. And afterwards, there was real there was real pride. So um, yeah, it's something that I think we can we can return to. And by the way, not just on the U.S. men's and women's open. I think there's opportunities to do that 
in other parts of the championships we deliver as well. Our championships are are kind of so far staged out and approved that you know Mike Wan comes in with his hey what can we do in 2023 mentality and somebody says how do you feel about 2033 and you and I both know I don't have that patience gene so I'm trying to figure out how to how to implement some of those things sooner with a with a plan that's already so laid out a decade in advance. Mike there's been you know whether it's 5 7 10 years uh, this push for a a mixed championship uh, whether it be the LPGA and the PGA Tour, uh, b- b- trying to get something and, and putting it together. There was, there was, the idea was kicked around about Tournament of Champions, uh, you know, cohabitating uh, to start the year, stuff like that. How about a USGA mixed four ball? I mean, the, the, the advent of the four ball is, is not even a decade old. Uh, is that plausible? Plausible. I, I, if, if, if we're dialoguing it, Gary, I'm not aware of that yet which doesn't mean that uh, doesn't mean it doesn't exist, just means Clueless Mike hasn't stumbled into that topic yet. Um, hey, I think the good news is there is and was real interest between the LPGA and the PGA Tour uh, to get this done, and more than just interest. I mean, actual contractual arrangements and searching for the right place and time. So I, I know that. I know that exists from my previous work, and that's an exciting opportunity. Um, and I, I believe in that so much that obviously I, I bring that belief to the USGA. So I've said this and I continue to say that um, men and women playing together on a great stage on the same course at the same time and potentially even team together um, isn't a dream. It's um, it's it's a future and it's a near future. The, the, the when I look at the USGA and I in my lifetime, the men's championship was the championship. Uh, not that the other ones didn't have tremendous gravity and weight to them. Um, I have felt for the last 10, 15 years, for whatever reason, there's been a vulnerability uh, that, that, that players have been more willing to take shots uh, at the USGA. The, this notion about amateurs running the professional game, which I think is silly uh, because you, you, you're in an office with a bunch of professionals who, who spend their days and their lives uh, trying to advocate for the game of golf. So I, I've never understood that. Did you feel that the USGA was vulnerable for a period? Uh, I felt, I don't know about vulnerable, but I did feel like I did feel that there was um, I did feel that they'd been you know they'd been they'd been knocked around a bit. And quite frankly, it was one of the reasons I had interest in the job. Mm. Um, you know me, like I'm a I'm a I'm a guy who likes to come when he's needed. And if the USJ was bulletproof, I'm not really sure I would have enjoyed the opportunity. Like if if I were to come there and somebody said to me, "Please just don't screw it up. We really like the plane we're on." And just you know, just don't mess with the slope. There's guys, there's there's men and women that are so much better at that than me, um, and I'm not I'm not built for that. So I like coming someplace where somebody says, "Hey, what things could we what things could we do to be better? Where can we, where can we share up areas where we're not strong?" I um, that that's a, that's exciting. That's food for me in the in the grand scope of fueling. So um, yeah, listen, I've said this many times, and I've said this to our own team. If we're waiting for somebody to love the umpire. Um, it's going to be a long wait, right? I mean, I've I've never been at a football game and applauded the um, the referee for calling pass interference, even if they were right. So you know, at some point, you know, when you got to govern the game, you got to be able, you got to be thick skinned enough to to take it. I know that as the commissioner of the LPGM, you know, because you've interviewed you interviewed me on a bunch of decisions I've made that most of my tour and most of my fans thought were nuts. And to stand there at the podium and have everybody tell you you're an idiot isn't enjoyable, uh, but it is the job. Um, I do think that. Um, uh, I, I do think that uh, uh, some some folks don't understand why different entities would govern the game versus different entities would would run a tour. But uh, first person I called when I had this offer was Jay and said, hey, Jay, I'm thinking about this USJ thing. Is this right? Um, would you want me there? Would this be a good partnership between you and I? I wanted to know what Jay thought about the USJ. I wanted to know whether or not um, he thought I was right for it. I knew I was a I knew I was a square peg round hole. And um, Jay, like many others, was the reason why I took the job and, uh, and wanted to even further this partnership and make sure that we're talking to each other all the time. So I'm sure that some of the, you know, some of the hits the USGA have taken are self-inflicted. I can promise you that some of the hits I took at the LPGA and that we took were self-inflicted by Mike Wan. And I, I remember saying to the board when I accepted the job, if you think hiring me is going to lessen the number of mistakes we make publicly, you're seriously wrong. I, I lead the league in mistakes per commissioner, um, but I promise you those mistakes will make us better in time. And we made a lot of mistakes and did a lot of things that people scratched their head at the LPJ. But today you wake up, I remember we were, when I told everybody we were going global, we were going to have players and fans and, and sponsors from all over the world. I had more than a few both players and fans reach out to me and say, 
goodbye LPGA, you're, you're dead forever. And today, you know, selling your TV rights to 185 countries is, is game changing for the LPGA. We're, we're televised as any sport in the world. There's no other women's sport televised like us. Very few men's sports televised like us. And um, those decisions weren't popular when you made them, but I saw the other side of the mountain. We got to be, we got to be true to seeing the other side of the mountain. I've said this many times that I've been around enough current athletes and future athletes that they they'll talk about 30 years from now, but they're really talking about 30 days from now in their own game. And I get that. I would do if I was trying to make a living getting a ball in a hole for the least number of strokes. Um, but we've got to be the ones thinking about, you know, grandkids, kids, and whether or not golf's going to be better then. And sometimes when you make decisions based on that, you're not going to be loved by the people trying to get it done today. And, and that's okay. Last thing, Mike, I felt to some degree the LPGA, when you took over, and even through that period, it was a collective cause. People were rooting, rooting for advancement, rooting for more events, rooting for more television, more, more you know, bigger purses. Uh, with the USGA, if there is going to be the sense that everybody in the game is pulling in the same direction uh, with the sled, is it just merely a matter of communication and understanding of all these parties? Because like I said, I think reflexively, people look at governance and go, oh, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna push back against it. How do you quell that and squash that down, particularly from mouthpieces in the game that have voice, the elite player? Well, I think there's two parts to your question. Let me answer the second part first, because the answer is, the answer is I'm not, to be honest with you, and I had the same challenge as the LPGA commissioner. Um, I used to say every time I hit the send button on my computer, 30% of my members didn't like me. I wasn't sure which 30 until I turned on TV the next day. Um, but you have to not be afraid to hit send and you have to be able to take the 30%. And that's, that's fine. I mean, at the end of the day, if, you, if I believe we're doing the right thing for the game, um, I can't or nor would I try to quell somebody's voice who has a voice. They've earned that right, just like I've earned that right. And if somebody wants to say that, you know, Mike Wan or the USJ is crazy, I got to be willing to not only hear that, accept that and decide whether or not to move on or change. I think the first part of your question though, Gary, is a much more important question, which is today I think the USGA tends to only be represented by what happens at the men's US Open mm -hmm. and in rulings. Because, because we don't do much talking. We only, we only respond to what, what talking comes. And what I've said is golf needs the USGA to be bigger and bolder and longer term. And I think they are bold and long term, but we kind of keep it, the, the, the mindset of the USGA has always been, we just do our work, kind of like a government official. We just do our work, and if people don't get it, that's okay. And that's probably all right. But as you know, I don't, I don't have that DNA. Um, I want to, I want to make sure that when, uh, when the PGA of America or the RNA or the, or the LPGA or, or the National Golf Course uh, Club Owners Association thinks about the USGA, they think about somebody who is really taking a bold leadership step to take us to the next, to the next generation. You and I don't have a conversation today about. What are you doing, Mike, to make sure golf is stronger 50 years from now in, right. in water and in juniors and in amateur events? We just don't have those conversations because we don't make any we don't make any bold commitments there. But I can tell you, we're going to we're going to be pretty bold about the next 30 years. We're going to we're going to find a way to reduce how much water a golf course needs by 50 percent. To do that, I'm going to have to spend 30, 40, 50 million dollars to figure that out. But if we don't do it, I don't know who's waiting. And if we don't start Team USA, I don't know who is we're going to figure out a way to get all of our amateur championships in doubt. So the next time there's a global recession, we don't tell you that we're only going to play eight of our championships next year or just the professional ones. We have to make sure that the amateur game is completely um, removed and, and insulated from what can happen in terms of economic times or, or TV contracts. And I've said this to my board, you know, things are pretty good at the USGA today, but I've been around golf long enough to know it doesn't last. So when it's good, figure out how to protect all the stuff that could be unprotected when it's bad. We have to make sure that when people think of the USJ, they think about they're protecting the game long-term, they're protecting amateurs long-term, they're protect, and of course they have to do rulings. They are, they are golf's cop. And sometimes you gotta scream at the cop and that's okay with me. But if that's all we are, um, then we probably deserve some of the feedback. If all we do is rulings and all we do is put on a couple of major championships, um, we should be better than that. And, and we are, and we will be. Uh, I'm going to let you go with, with just letting you know that th this little entity that, that we have launched here called Five Clubs, the genesis of it is the five original clubs of the USGA with, with the aspiration, Mike, of being foundational uh, with, with the belief that we're going to grow. So that's a little homage to, to your, uh, your outfit there. So I don't know if uh, I, my camera can't see it, but when I, when I got here on my first day, I took a tour of the museum. 
uh, next to our, which by the way, if everyone's ever been to the USGA Golf Museum, it's an unbelievable, if you're a golfer, it is. it's an unbelievable place. And I came to a stop, there was a little plaque in the corner and I started reading it. And I said to the person who was walking around with me, is this, and she said, yeah, that's the first page of the constitution written in 1894. And I see, I said, I need an original uh, rep replica of this and I'm gonna frame it. And so it's in my, it's literally, you know, arm's length away from where I am today. <laughs> so every time I walk in and hang up my coat, which unfortunately is gonna be part of my future here as we head into winter, uh, first time I've owned a coat in about 30 years. Um, I got to do that and hang it right next to the original constitution, which talks about the five clubs, why we were formed, because it's kind of like act like a founder to me at the LPGA. Like if you don't know where you're from, as uh, my father used to say, if you're not tied to a dock, you'll just float aimlessly and everything seems to be a destination. If you know where you're from, then you can always understand how far you've come. I want to read our constitution every time I come in in the morning because those five clubs had a vision. And even though that vision has expanded, I have a responsibility to deliver that vision first and foremost, just like 13 founders of the LPGA had a vision. My first responsibility is to deliver that vision. If I could take that vision farther, great. But first and foremost, you got to do what 13 women thought of. In this case, there was five clubs that, that God love them, they thought bigger than themselves and said, we need an entity here that thinks more than just what happens in our own membership and our own club. And if you jump forward 127 years, thank goodness they had that foresight. Well, listen, I, I've always valued the time with you. You know that. Uh, thanks for, for spending the time today. Enjoy that Jersey winter, as you just alluded to. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing you hopefully in the new year. Thanks, Bob. Good to see you again. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Well, we certainly appreciate the time of Mike Juan. Hopefully you got uh, plenty out of that. I certainly did. I always do when I have a conversation with him. Speaking of uh, hearing things and getting it unfiltered, next week, Kevin Kisner, four-time winner on the PGA Tour, the defending champion this upcoming year at the World Golf Championship match play event, a guy who at 37 years of age has figured it out in a big, big way in terms of his place in the game and also his voice in the game. He is going to tell you exactly what he thinks. I'm looking forward to that conversation. That will be next week with our Five Club Conversations. So for now, we say goodbye. Thanks for taking the time. We'll talk to you next week.